0: Welcome to Historically Inaccurate, Wholesome Heritage Moments with Megs, where I delve into extended cuts from my TikTok, Megs Reads Good. Here you'll get to hear your favorite stories as extended cuts with extra little tidbits of information along with my lukewarm takes. So go make yourself a cup of hot chocolate, throw some whipped cream in there if you're feeling extra fancy, and get comfortable because I have feelings. On this week's episode, we're going to go over Gabriola Mansion, Maxine's Beauty Parlor, and Prohibition. How are they all connected? I'll give you one hint. Underground tunnels. Just a quick note before we get into this episode, there is going to be mentions obviously of hauntings because, you know, on brand for this month. There's also going to be mentions of murder. So if you are sensitive to that or listening to this around somebody that doesn't want to listen about murders with some gruesome details, just, you know, take note. Built in 1901 for industrialist Benjamin T. Rogers, founder of BC Sugar and its refinery. That's right, That Rogers Sugar. The property spanned an entire city block and contained horse stables and greenhouses. Gabriola Mansion itself is an impressive 17,486 square feet. It reflected the grandeur of Victorian homes that existed in the West End at that time. I mean, this area was so fancy, it was once referred to as Blue Blood Alley, if that tells you anything. And our friend Ben, did you know that he was also the first person in Vancouver to own a car? The mansion itself was designed by prominent arts and crafts architect Samuel McClure and it gets its name from the sandstone block that was used for its exterior which was quarried on Gabriola Island. Local legend states that there is a tunnel under the house that connects the mansion to a nearby nightclub and was reportedly used for bootlegging during Vancouver's prohibition era. Oh you didn't know Vancouver had a prohibition era? It did in 1917. We'll get to that a little bit later. The nightclub that the tunnel was connected to, its last iteration, was known as Maxine's Hideaway. It sat at 1215 Bidwell Street, and it had quite the salacious reputation over its 105-year run. While the building itself is long gone, the facade still remains. When Rogers died in 1918, his widow, Mary, moved out, and along with architect Charles Bentall, she converted Gabriola Mansion to an apartment building known as the Angus Apartments. Apparently, Angus was Mary's maiden name, so it makes sense. Bentall actually lived in one of those apartments until his death in 1974. Now, if that last name sounds familiar, it's because Charles's son Clark is responsible for the Bentall buildings on Burrard Street. Quite the legacy. In the mid-1970s, after all the tenants had moved out and the building had fallen into disrepair, it was given a refresh and converted into High's Mansion. Yes, that High's, the famous steakhouse with the delicious cheesy bread. In 1993, the building changed hands again and became Roman's Macaroni Grill. After a fire in 1998, the house sat empty until it was sold in 2015 to a developer with plans to convert the house and surrounding land into a multi-unit development with rental apartments and townhomes. Now, the mansion itself will stay standing as is and will be converted into multiple apartments. But will you want to rent one of those apartments? depends on what you're into, because during its time as a restaurant, customers claimed to see cutlery floating in midair. Staff would often see the ghost of a young man who would appear at the top of the grand staircase. Only when approached, he would vanish. One time, a sous chef heard the clatter of pots and pans from the kitchen. When he went to investigate, he only found a large mess and no culprit. He ran from the building in fear. Another story goes that a painter was up on a ladder when he felt someone watching him. He turned to find an elderly man standing by the staircase. He asked the man what he was looking for, but the man didn't respond. By the time the painter had descended the ladder to approach the man, he was gone. Like the sous chef, the painter fled the building, leaving all his things behind. Now, the dark reputation of Gabriola Mansion only intensified in 2016 when the body of murder victim Natsumi Kagawa was discovered on property. 30-year-old Natsumi had been reported missing more than two weeks prior to her body being found stuffed into a suitcase on September 28, 2016 on the grounds of Gabriola Mansion. Her murderer was sentenced to life in prison with no parole for 14 years. I'm not going to mention his name because, quite frankly, he's not important enough. He successfully appealed the conviction in 2021, stating that the judge who oversaw his trial made several mistakes, particularly in regards to accepting items of hearsay. The items in question, the defendant's brother had gone to police stating that he had overheard his brother confess to the murder on the phone. The BC Appeal Court threw out the conviction in order to retrial. This month, October 2022, the Supreme Court upheld the conviction, finding that the phone evidence was admissible at trial under the Party of Admissions exception to the hearsay rule. I don't know legal stuff, but I'm glad he's behind bars. It is believed that Natsumi was out on a date with the defendant, and when she had to leave, he was so outraged, he smothered her with a pillow. When her body was found, though, the decomposition was so severe that the medical examiner could not make an accurate determination of death. While the defendant did plead guilty to interfering with her body by putting it in a suitcase and placing it at Gabriola, he has never admitted to the murder. Like, Really? Really? And what about Maxine's? Well, who was the infamous Maxine? Now, I've read different versions of Maxine's story. One was that she was a Scottish immigrant who opened Maxine's beauty parlor in the early 1920s. Another said that she was from Wisconsin and trained in beauty in California. It said that she opened her first hair salon on Dunsmere and then her second location at 1211 Bidwell Street. She opened Maxine's College of Beauty Culture next door and also manufactured cosmetics at a small factory on Georgia Street called Max Chemical Company. And I'm not going to lie to you, when I first read that, I thought it said My Chemical Romance. She eventually married a young Welshman named Ivor Ewan Webb, and together they hired Thomas McCavery to design a new building to replace the original school on Bidwell. This is the facade that remains standing today, and it currently houses a J.J. Bean. They closed the beauty school in 1942 and converted it to the Maxine Apartments. They also opened the Max Ivor Motel in Seattle, and after Maxine's passing in 1952, Ivor relocated to Seattle to run the newly expanded Max Ivor Motel. Now, if Maxine's does have the salacious history that it is claimed that it had, Maxine did it by hiding in plain sight. She disguised the building as a beauty parlor and boarding house when it was really an after-hours bordello, where customers could also get their hands on illegal alcohol. There are two rumored tunnels that led to Maxine's, the first from Gabriola to Maxine's beauty parlor, and the second from Maxine's out to English Bay. While some say that Rogers was an upstanding citizen who never used the tunnels, J.D. Henderson, the former owner of Maxine's, who turned it into a Spanish restaurant, claimed to have been told stories by surviving family members who said the tunnel was lined in red velvet for one Benjamin Rogers. Henderson also found out that the second tunnel was used for imports of the bootlegging kind, Sailors would use the tunnels to run rum from the boathouses at English Bay. And while some believe these tunnels to be pure fiction, the door that led to the passageway at Maxine's did exist. The peephole that was used to identify the rum runners was still intact when Henderson took ownership of the building. And the entry point at English Bay? It's rumored to still exist in the concrete change rooms that remain standing today. A great amount of mystery surrounds Maxine's. There's a lot of debate over who Maxine actually was, when her building was built, was it actually a brothel? Was she even running a business during Prohibition? One thing that we can most certainly confirm is true, though, was the arrest of fugitive Joseph Corbett Jr. on Maxine's property. Corbett elicited a nationwide manhunt when he kidnapped and murdered Adolf Coors III, heir to the Coors Beer family dynasty. Approximately 1.5 million wanted posters were distributed in effort to find him. The police chased him from Toronto to Winnipeg and finally found him in Vancouver, where he had been living in Maxine's boarding house. Apparently, he was very quiet and always paid his rent on time. Six cars filled with FBI agents descended upon Maxine's apartment hotel and arrested Corbett. With a sordid history like that, it shouldn't be surprising that Maxine's is rumored to be a little bit haunted. Patrons of the Spanish restaurant that occupied Maxine's prior to its demolition said that they spotted female apparitions. There was one story that said a woman had been murdered where the ladies' washrooms were positioned in the restaurant and guests would report feeling sad or frightened in that particular area. Then there was a pastry chef who had been working at the Spanish restaurant, Mescalaro, who said that she had seen a young woman in a blue dress with dark hair out of the corner of her eye while she was working in the basement. When she told her friend and colleague about it, he responded that it was one of the brothel girls who had been murdered by one of her clients and had died in the building. At this point, you can probably tell that Prohibition is connected to Gabriola and Maxine's by way of tunnels. But how did Prohibition start? You know I can tell you. Prohibition started in BC in 1917 and lasted for four years. The Vancouver Police Department was actually formed after the Great Fire in order to rescue barrels of whiskey that were in the harbor. So, Vancouver had quite the history with alcohol. The first ban of alcohol was for Indigenous people and it included the crime of selling liquor to Indians. Alcohol was first introduced via the fur trade and consumption was outlawed for Indigenous people by Governor James Douglas in 1854. It lasted for over a century. With the revision of the Indian Act in 1951, the ban was partially lifted and meant that Indigenous people were allowed to consume alcohol in beer parlors. The firewater myth was often used to persuade indigenous people that they were better off drinking beer rather than spirits, and what was the firewater myth, you ask? It claimed that indigenous people couldn't metabolize alcohol as well as their white counterparts, which we know is not true. In the late 1800s, company policy at the Hastings Mill was that it was dry, which is what inspired Gassy Jack to actually open up his first saloon. And in 1905, City Council voted to abolish saloons completely, which, by definition, were standalone bars that were not part of a hotel. As of 1906, all bars in the city had to conform to the regulations of hotels. They had to have 25 bedrooms for guests and dining rooms capable of accommodating those guests. The idea was that if someone imbibed a bit too much, they could sleep it off at the hotel. And this wasn't so much for the fear of what would happen after that person left the establishment, like if they would get hurt or something bad would happen, but more that the act of being drunk was highly frowned upon. They also, around this time, raised the drinking age from 16 to 18 years old. And then the Women's Christian Temperance Union came along, and they had chapters all over North America. And while their presence was strong in the U.S., it didn't really have the same hold in B.C., due in part to the majority of residents hailing from England and Scotland, where drinking was very much a part of their culture. Vancouver was also still fundamentally a frontier town, where debaucherous behavior was still quite tolerated. The initial call of prohibitionists fell on deaf ears until the First World War when food rationing also meant limited alcohol production. Prohibiting alcohol started to look a little bit more beneficial. In 1915, a temperance conference was held in Vancouver, which resulted in the creation of the People's Prohibition Association, the PPA, if you will. They carried forth the beliefs of suffragist and temperance advocate Nellie McClung, who told a crowd of thousands about the price women pay for alcohol indulgence at home. Businessmen ended up joining the PPA and campaigned on behalf of the Dries. They even convinced Premier Richard McBride to vote on Prohibition in the 1916 election. McBride ended up stepping down, but the referendum carried forward with his successor, William Bowser. Prohibition was voted into law and became official on October 1st, 1917. Even with this, only nine of the city's hotel bars ended up closing. The other 60 converted to cafes or private clubs with memberships. Others became cabarets, which was a risky choice given the reputations that cabarets had held from previous years. The Patricia Hotel, for instance, on 403 Hastings Street was Vancouver's most significant Prohibition Hotel. It's actually still standing today if you want to go check out a piece of Prohibition history. Around this time, there were loopholes for procuring alcohol. Since only buying or selling alcohol was prohibited, you could get away with producing it for export or private consumption. The private bar at Highcroft, anyone? You would have either had to stock up prior to the law taking effect or have the means to import from outside of the province. The other loophole was your family doctor. Doctors still used alcohol to treat various ailments at this point in time and even more so during Prohibition. In 1919, for instance, they sold over 315,000 prescriptions. This caused quite the scandal, and the Prohibition Act was amended to limit doctor prescriptions. Now, B.C. wasn't the only province to see the prohibition of alcohol. On April 1st, 1918, yes, April Fool's Day, Prime Minister Borden instituted a national prohibition of alcohol, which made imports from other provinces illegal. It also limited production, only supplying pharmacies, churches, and rum rations for soldiers on the front line with legal amounts. Vancouver's wealthy ended up going to church a lot more after this. As history has told us time and time again, those who yell the loudest are usually the most guilty, and this was the case for the PPA Prohibition Commissioner, Walter C. Finley. Walter had been the one to flag the overprescription of alcohol from doctors and even went so far as to try and ban prescriptions in total unsuccessfully. In December 1918, an arrest warrant was issued for Finley on the charge of legally importing 700 cases of rye whiskey into B.C. He was arrested while attempting to cross the U.S. border. He ended up pleading guilty, paid a $1,000 fine, and abandoned Canada for the U.S. Now, originally, he wouldn't indulge anything about his crime apart from the fact that, you know, he was guilty— but eventually his lawyer made a deal with the Crown and Finley returned to Victoria to testify at an inquiry. His testimonies included evidence that revealed an extended network of smuggling, including trainloads of whiskey that was delivered to his warehouse in Vancouver, as well as large quantities of missing stock from government warehouses. He only ended up serving two years in prison for his misdeeds. Makes you wonder who else was part of this large network he spoke of. In 1921 prohibition ended up being repealed. The PPA proved to not really be that great at their jobs and the war, along with rationing, had ended. So it wasn't really necessary anymore. The end of prohibition didn't signal the end of public liquor restriction in Vancouver though. While prohibition ended for Vancouverites in 1921, our neighbors to the south were just entering their prohibition era. Prohibition in the U.S. started in 1920 and lasted until 1933. Fortunately for them, due to our own prohibition years and continuing strict liquor laws, locals had become quite skilled at sneaking liquor in and out of the country, and rum running once again became quite lucrative for those who weren't afraid to ignore international law. The best-known rum runners from Vancouver was the Rifle family. They had a fleet of ships that took legally produced booze south, making sure to stay on the outskirts of U.S. water. Smugglers and small boats would meet them and purchase booze to bring back to shore. The Rifles used a World War I ship called the Malahat, which was also known as the Queen of Romero, as the main ship for their venture. It was large enough to carry 60,000 cases of liquor. Now, obviously, the rifles did very well for themselves. They were never caught and actually used the proceeds from their um, ventures towards philanthropic efforts like donating the land for the George C. Rifle Migratory Bird Sanctuary in Delta, as well as the land for the first art gallery on Georgia Street. They also built Casa Mia in 1932. The 20,728-square-foot mansion still sits at 2215 Marine Drive and features a spring-loaded dance floor just like the one in the Commodore Ballroom, which George Rifle also built and owned. The mansion was so grand, George flew in Disney animators to paint scenes from Disney movies in his children's playroom. Now, B.C. officially marked the end of Prohibition by opening the first of nine government liquor stores on June 15, 1921. Even with this alleged end of Prohibition, legalization of all alcohol beverages was slow. Clubs were still regularly raided, keeping alcohol consumption underground. Beer parlors weren't even legalized until four years after Prohibition had officially ended. Clubs where you could eat, drink, and dance didn't even start receiving liquor licenses until 1950, and most were considered bottle clubs where you could sneak your own liquor in to mix with non-alcoholic drinks. Police would raid these establishments so often that the Hotel Vancouver band leader, Dal Richards, would instruct his band to play Roll Out the Barrels to signal that the police were on their way. While liquor laws slowly loosened for most sections under the Indian Act, like I mentioned before, the prohibited Indigenous peoples from liquor consumption were not fully repealed until 1985. And there are still towns throughout Canada that remain dry through prohibiting liquor sales. Even in 2022, we see the evidence of Vancouver's prohibition pass from liquor license notices posted on the sides of restaurants to the existence of BC liquor stores. I hope you enjoyed that little tour down Memory Lane into Vancouver's secret past. We got more secret tunnels for you. And so until next time, thank you for being here. I appreciate you. You are the very best. See you later.